we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And by his life and his death, and particularly his resurrection, we have seen his glory. And we're grateful that you've revealed him to us. And so we pray, even now, that you would enable us by this written word to see him as well. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Romans and chapter 10. I want to, be, I want to read verses 5 through 13. Romans in chapter 10, please. <clears throat> Pardon me, as I get a bit of a drink. Who knew when I was called to do ministry that I was actually somewhat allergic to Easter lilies? <clears throat> Should have been somewhat of a sign even then. I don't know. Excuse me. Romans in chapter 10, please. This is the word of God. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, and do not say in your hearts, who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified. And with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's Easter Sunday. You can see, I suppose, this particular passage, uh, why it is fitting for this day. Uh, Well, as he put it, he says that... um, For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses as is saved. And all of that is that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, uh, you shall be saved. I mean, every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. That's the reason we worship on Sunday. Uh, Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, believers worshiped on Saturdays, those uh, in the covenant with God and because of the resurrection of Jesus uh, believers Christians gather on Sunday uh, to worship we see that very early on in the life of the church when Paul writes to the church in Corinth verse 16 he mentions they're gathering on the first day of the week that is to celebrate to commemorate uh, to acknowledge the resurrection uh, of Jesus Um, we set aside one Sunday each year to, to think this through. Again, every Sunday as a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Had he not been raised, we wouldn't be worshiping. Um, but we do on this first, on this Easter, excuse me, this Easter Sunday. Uh, we do through the course of the year think through various 
days, events, situations in the life of Jesus. Obviously, the incarnation at Christmas. Uh, some, the baptism of Jesus at Epiphany uh, during the season of Lent. Uh, we think about the um, temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Certainly, as it comes to Holy Week, we have Palm Sunday. And then the evenings we just experienced on, when, on Thursday and, and Friday with Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then certainly today as well. And it's fitting that we do that. It's important. It's helpful that we do that because it reminds us that Christianity really is Christ. If you take him out, we have nothing. He really is it. You can take, as we've said before, Muhammad out of Islam and substitute another one to say what he said... And you'd still have Islam. You could take Buddha out of Buddhism and substitute another person and to say what he said and still have Buddhism. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, you haven't got anything at all. Because he's it. He's irreplaceable. There isn't anyone like him. He's the very son of God. No one could come and say what he said with the authority with which he said it. No one could do what he did. Make atonement for the sins of sinners other than this very one who is the son of God. And so we think about these things. We think about the life of Jesus all the time. On this particular Sunday, we raise this resurrection into our thoughts most particularly. We see how important it really is in in verse 8 of the passage I read. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. It's right there. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've confessed it with your mouth. You believe it in your heart. How does he put it? The word of faith that we proclaim, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's this sense, you see, that Christianity is a wholehearted faith. It's, it's believing in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean our minds aren't involved. We understand it. We think it. We have facts. We think it through. We understand who Jesus is and what he did. But, but, but the apostle says, belief, faith, has its very center in our hearts, the very core of our being. Um, theologian R.C. Sproul puts it like this. He says, the second condition that must be fulfilled if salvation is to take place is to believe in the heart. The Greek word for belief is pistao, which means uh, to put your personal trust and confidence in. Now, where is that faith? In the heart. Paul is not using heart as a term to describe merely the seat of emotions. When he speaks about the heart, he's speaking about the core of one's being. It includes the mind, but it involves more than the mind. From the depths of my being, I trust that God raised Jesus from the dead. He goes on to say, this is why Orthodox Christianity declares belief in the resurrection of Christ to be essential. If a person denies the resurrecting of Jesus Christ from the dead, then he cannot possibly be a Christian. Uh, Christians can make mistakes in theology and not everybody is perfectly Orthodox. Indeed, if we had to wait until we were perfectly orthodox before we were saved, none of us would be saved. But the denial of the resurrection of Christ is an intolerable error. You cannot be saved if you do not believe 
in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, why? Why is it essential, vital to us, to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Now, from this passage, there's a couple of things that the apostle isn't saying that he's not saying. And I'm taking this from this expression because if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified and with a mouth one confesses that he's saved. Paul isn't saying that being a Christian, being saved is a, a, a two-step process that you confess with your mouth and you're saved you believe in your heart and you're justified. He's not saying it, it, it's, it's two-stepped in, in that thing. Confession with the mouth or calling upon the name of the Lord expresses simply what's in the heart. The mouth confesses what's in the heart. Two sides of the same coin. These both go uh, together. If he is indeed the Lord, you will call upon him. For your salvation. If indeed he's been raised from the dead, he's the Lord, and you call upon him for your salvation. It's a twofer. They both go together. It isn't that you do one and something happens, you do the other, something else happens. Uh, both of these things go together. Uh, nor is he saying that there's a huge uh, difference in his language here between being justified and being saved. He's saying, well, uh, if you uh, confess with your mouth, uh, 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 you're saved. But if you believe in your heart, you're justified. In saying first this, then that. No, these two things go together. Now, there's differences as we understand these words, justified and saved. But the apostle is using them uh, in a, in synonymously, really, that they're the same. Because all who are justified are saved, and all who are saved are justified. Uh, to be justified means... That God has said something about you. That he has declared you, if you are justified, to be righteous in his sight. Uh, uh, That means that you've been reconciled to him. That means uh, there's no longer any hostility between you and and God. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification comes by faith. God declares us righteous. Not because we're inherently righteous. But because Christ is righteous. And he gives his righteousness. He clothes us with his righteousness. So God can see us in Christ as righteous. And declares us righteous right in his sight. We've used the expression often that to be righteous and to be, I'm sorry, to be justified uh, is as one, just as if you've never sinned. Uh, You can see what I'm doing there. And the other expression is just as if I've always obeyed. That's an amazing thing. And we realize I don't deserve that. I didn't earn that. I haven't done that. But Jesus has. And so this is a word of faith comes to us this declaration because we've been joined with Christ and what is true of him then becomes true of us and his righteousness true of him becomes true of us in the sight of God 
Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, meaning, meaning there's no longer anything between us that would separate us, that would cause us to be estranged from each other. All there, there was our sin and God's holiness. Our sin keeps us, it estranges us from God, if you will. It separates us from God very personally and subjectively because sin means I really don't want anything to do with God. Oh, I may tolerate him or I may, may give him lip service and all of that. I may not be outwardly hostile towards him, I may be. But, but sin says I want to go my own way, not his way. And thus we can see, therefore, the estrangement between us because of our sin. And not only that, but because God is holy... Our sin is an offense to him. It breaks his law. It breaks what is true and what is righteous and what is good, which is God. And being holy then, you see, he condemns us in our sin. So we can see the hostility that's there. There isn't this um, union between the two of us. And, and God says, here's how I want you to live. I want you to love me, love God, and to love your neighbor. And yet because of our sin, we're prideful. And we don't love our neighbor as we ought. We don't love God as we ought, but we go our own, our own way, thus condemned in his sight. But because of Jesus and all that he's done through faith in him, you see, then God declares us righteous in his sight. And thus, we are saved. We're saved from his wrath. And we're saved so that we can live in a way that's pleasing to him. Saved from his wrath. Saved to being conformed to his image. That's the sentency of being saved. All who are justified are saved. All who are saved have been justified. Now, this word saved is, is bigger than justified. I don't know if Paul wants us to think about these, the bigger aspects of it, but it also includes something called our adoption. If we're justified, we're also adopted into the family of God. That's part of our salvation. When God declares us righteous and we're reconciled to him, he receives us. And so the apostle says in Romans 5 that because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by this grace that we have access to him. As our father, we were adopted. And even the hardships that we go through, still we have hope because he is our father. And, and, and the hardships that we go through will produce the very character of Christ in us. And so still we have hope even as we pray to our father and even as he disciplines us. That we know we belong, we belong to him. And not only are we adopted into his family, but, but there's this process through which we go through of being sanctified, that is, being conformed to the image of Christ. And the day will come when we'll be glorified, when we'll be made like Christ. Not divine, but in his character to live in the new heavens and the new earth, a life that God has intended for us to live, to glorify him. So that's this sense of being justified, being saved, and confession, and all of that. But when we say that we believe that God has raised Christ from the dead, what are we saying? When we say we believe that, Christ, that, that God has raised Christ from the dead, what are we really saying? Because the apostle says, 
if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you see, then we'll be justified. We'll confess with our mouth. We'll be saved. This belief with the heart, we must believe that God raised him from the dead. What are we, what are we really believing? Now, we say this, not every year. I went back and checked my notes. But many years. So I trust that this is, this is a review for you, many of you. Maybe for some of you it's new. I don't know. But, but this is what we don't mean when we say that God raised Jesus from the dead. We don't mean that he simply resuscitated a corpse. Simply brought him back to his old life, if you will. Uh, Jesus brought a few people back to life, people who had died. Jairus' daughter, the, 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 the son of the widow, and of course, more well-known, Lazarus. But each one of those was brought back to the old life, if you will, the old body, and the body that would eventually die. Each one of those that Jesus had raised would again Die In the same way, the healings of Jesus were to show us that the kingdom of God had come and inaugurated in Jesus. But, but even the blind man who received sight, I suspect as he got older, uh, his vision began to dim. Even those new eyes that Jesus had given him. And the lame man who, who was given the ability to walk, uh, probably in his older age, got arthritis in his knees uh, and found it difficult. It was, it was the, old, the old body, you see. But when Jesus was raised from the dead. This body was the body of the age to come. It was a new body. Oh, it looked like the old body. They could recognize him, just like ours will be. But, but, but there's something different about it, obviously. He was able to come and go. He was able to, 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 to move out of these grave claws. He was able to, 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 to walk out of the tomb. Remember, the, the stone was moved from the tomb, not so Jesus could get out, <laughs> but so people could look in and realize that it was empty. Uh, once he's raised, getting out of the tomb is not a big deal, right? So, so, so it's, it's all of that. So it wasn't this resuscitated body, but it was this, this new body, incorruptible, imperishable body. And it wasn't uh, simply that this was some kind of a spiritual resurrection uh, of, of Jesus. That, that now, uh, you know, he died, but now he lives in the presence of God. Uh, the disciples would have already believed that. I mean, they weren't Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And therefore, I'll let you fill in the joke. You know the joke, right? They were sad, you see, um, because they had no... They, they, they believed in, resur- in, in resurrection in that sense, and they believed that a day would come at the end of time when this kind of resurrection would take place. But, but they believed even then that surely Jesus died and he would be among the living in the presence of the Lord. That wouldn't have startled them. That wouldn't have inspired them. That would have been no big deal. They would have gone, yeah, of course. That's true for all of us. And it wasn't that he just sort of lived by way of influence in their lives. He would do that. Surely they would remember the things he taught. Surely remember his life. Surely that would have impacted them and it would influence the way that they lived. And even if Jesus hadn't been bodily resurrected, probably somebody would have said, well, that reminds me what you just said or what you just did of, of Jesus. It's true for us, right? People die that we know and they influence us. Their life still influences us. Um, Elvis 
for some, sadly, although some people actually, well, we won't even go there. Uh, Hitler, sadly, we see the influence still, perhaps more positively, maybe a, a Lincoln or a Martin Luther King, or maybe some of the old dead guys that we read, we, we know they still influence us. Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, in my life, Baxter and Bunyan and Edwards and people like that. So, so they still influence us, but, but it doesn't mean that. That wouldn't have really moved the disciples in any particular way, per se. No, no, what we're, what we're saying is that he really was raised from the dead. The um, operative words we can find, for instance, in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, uh, some of which we read uh, this morning earlier, uh, says that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared. And so when we're saying that he raised from the dead, we're saying that this whole new body came upon him that was incorruptible. Uh, One author puts it like this, says his body seems to have been transformed in a way for which there was no precedent and of which there remains no second example. Not yet. For his resurrection was evidence of the beginning of the first fruits of a new creation. And then we ask, is it reasonable for us to believe that this, this actually happened? Think about that. You should, if you've been around a while, if you've been around Christianity a while, you should have these categories popping up in your brain. Is it reasonable to believe this? This is great airplane talk. When you're with people, they ask these kinds of questions. And, and first, of course, we just, people say, well, can you prove it scientifically? That is, is it reproducible? And you say, no. But scientific proof isn't the only kind of proof that exists in the world, you know. There's other kinds of proof as well. Uh, and, and you could say, well, you know, this never happened before. It hasn't happened since, right, uh, for, for normal human beings. And we have to just sort of couch that and say, but, but let's just hold for a minute and say that perhaps Jesus wasn't the normal human being. Maybe there was something else true about him. Yes, he was a human being, but yes, he was also the divine son of God. And so perhaps that puts him in a different category. So let's think this through. First of all, of course, the the key is that the tomb is empty and it's always been empty and nobody's ever found the body of of Jesus. Um, And so that's that's the big point here. You could say, well, the women went to the wrong tomb and then the soldiers and then then the the Romans went to the wrong tomb and then the Jewish authorities went to the wrong tomb and then the disciples. No, 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 no. Somebody would have had to know where the tomb was. They were guarding it, right? And, and so the tombs are simply, just simply, just simply empty, of course. And so that speaks to us of that it's reasonable, if you will, to believe that Jesus has, has risen. Some think that perhaps he didn't really die, you know, he just sort of fainted and passed out. But uh, how, how in the world, if that were true, could he get out of the grave clothes and then move the stone? There was probably on an incline to move up, it was probably pushed in front of the tomb because it was easier to move it down and then even to move the weight of this huge stone that was put there to keep people out 
large groups of men couldn't move it, how could this one who had been beaten in their minds nearly to death get out of it and then not have any marks on his body and come out? It just defies anything that we might want to think. And then, of course, uh, you could say, well, what about the appearances? Because not only was the tomb empty, but Jesus showed up and showed himself to people, first to the women, which is uh, the most interesting of all the appearances, I suspect, at least at the time, because the women were the first witnesses of Jesus. And in the days of Jesus, nobody would have ever used women to testify about anything, let alone something so significant as the resurrection of Jesus. But it was the women who saw him first and testified of his resurrection first. He first made his appearances to them. And the fact that he made it to women gives even more credibility of its, of its truth. And then some say, well, well, the people who saw Jesus were hallucinating. And you have to realize that it doesn't really fit any patterns of, of, of hallucination theories. Uh, first of all, it was very quick after he died that he appeared. And secondly, he appeared in many different places to many different people. And they all saw the same thing. And then on another occasion, there was a group of, of 500 who saw him. A rather group uh, hallucination, rather like a first century Woodstock. And, and you think, thank you for those of you who remember Woodstock. Uh, I know, there, I'm looking at those who've said, I've read about it uh, in my history book. But, but, but you get the point. Uh, all of these people sing. In fact, Paul makes mention, we read this this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Paul makes mention of the 500 who saw him. And he's saying that as if to say, most of them are still alive. Go ask them what they saw. And so the evidence was right before them uh, all the time. And then, uh, frankly, this emergence of this church. I mean, what changed these men from being cowards to being witnesses to being persecuted for what they say they saw and then even martyrs? What, what changed all of that? How did this church really begin? And unless there was something so significant that, that blew their socks off and they said, we have to testify of this. This makes it all true. Uh, one author, um, a Japanese novelist, in a book called The Life of Jesus, puts it like this. He says, if we do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then we're forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying uh, intensity. That we must believe that something happened. Well, they said it was that Jesus was raised from the dead. And all the evidence that we have points to that very, very fact. In fact, this teaching of the resurrection became the central teaching of the church. In fact, Peter's first sermon in Acts in chapter 2 as he's describing for them why he's standing before them and what has just happened because the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And he writes this, he says, men of, or he says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then later he says this. He says, this Jesus, God raised up, and of of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And as you read through the book of Acts, Luke writes it to help us to understand how the gospel spread. And of course, it was written probably in the later, mid to later 60s of the first century. But he had to wait to write it until everything he was going to write about happened. So it took a while. But when he writes about it, and you read the witness of the apostles from the original 11, and including Paul then, what you find is that their sermons are grounded upon, founded upon, the resurrection of Jesus. You realize if that piece is missing, there is no book of Acts. If that piece is missing, they have nothing of which to witness other than a dead Messiah. And that would never have caused them to do what they did. You read through the epistles and you find in the epistles, the grounding of the theology of the church is on an event that happened in this person's life, Jesus, his resurrection. Uh, We see it so clearly in the passage that we read responsively this morning from 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. This testimony says, this is what uh, I delivered to you as in first importance, what I also received. You remember Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus. He had a an experience. He could witness that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. And so he went back ultimately and he talked with the disciples of Jesus, those original apostles. And they laid out for him and he got from them. This is what he received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared. And he says he appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to the other apostles, James included. And also, Paul says, as one untimely born. I was later on to me as well. And then he goes on to say, verse 14 of that passage. If Christ hasn't been raised... Our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And he says, then we're misrepresenting God because we've testified it. It, It's been the very heart of our message. And if it isn't true, then we're liars. And if it isn't true, then what you're believing is false. And if it isn't true, then we're to be pitied because we have no hope. In fact, all those who've died in Christ already and we've done their funerals and we've Worshipped, and we said, praise God. This person's been received in the presence of the Lord and a day will come when he'll receive a new body and all of that. Paul says, no, sorry, that's false. If Christ hasn't been raised, then nothing that we believe about him is really, is really true. But then he goes on to say, but Christ has been raised and that is in fact the good news. So, why is it necessary then to believe it? Well, you see, that when Jesus was raised by the dead, from the dead, that God reversed the verdict that human beings had made about Jesus. You see, human beings, the Jewish leaders, the Romans, had condemned him to die. The Jewish leaders as a blasphemer, 
The Roman authorities authorized his death, perhaps as one who was a political threat. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, he said, no, 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 no. He's the son of God. When Paul writes in Romans, in fact, the way he opens up his letter to them, it goes like this, verse 3. He says, concerning his son, that is Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When God raised him from the dead, he was saying, you all killed him because you thought he deserved it as a sinner. But the reason he died was not because of his sin, actually, but because of yours. And once he had paid for your sins, then he was free to go. He had nothing for which to suffer, for he had committed no sin in himself. The early reformers were struck by this. They were struck by passages like Psalm 22 that Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they struggled with that. How could God forsake his sinless son? Why would he do such a thing? And then it dawned on them that though he was sinless himself, His father had placed upon him the guilt of the sin of sinners. And that's why he was dying. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That was the point of it. And they saw it. And they said, yes, of course. And that's what God was declaring when he raised Jesus from the dead. He is my son. Not only that, he was declaring that he is the Lord. Philippians in chapter 2, a a passage that we use frequently as a profession of faith. I trust a a passage that that the early church used to profess their faith as well. Verse 5, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that is, he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found uh, Uh, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. That is when he raised him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. That's his name, you see. He's the Lord. And when, 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 when the apostle says he's the Lord, he's saying he's God with us. Because that expression Lord was the very expression in the Old Testament that we would translate as Yahweh, as God. And so he's the Lord. And he's the one who's conquered sin and death. He's the one who rules over sin and death. We see that in the revelation that John receives. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus, the risen Christ. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death 
and Hades. He says, listen, I've conquered sin and death. I'm the Lord, trust me. I'm the living Lord, trust me. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, the father declared, he's my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's my son who has conquered sin and death. He's my son. Trust him, not only that. But we see in the resurrection of Jesus the very power of God to raise him and the very power of God that is towards us. You may remember when we studied Ephesians together a million years ago, it seems, but Ephesians and chapter 1. Paul is, is, is writing to them that, that we would know um, the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, but also that we'd, we would know the power that is towards us. And it's the power that comes to us because Jesus has risen. Verse 19, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness who fills all in all. He says, listen, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, there's power that's towards us that can raise us from our spiritual death. So he talks about in chapter 2 that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we're alive. How did that happen? It happened because Jesus is alive and the very power of his resurrection was toward us that we might be raised, you see, from the spiritual deadness. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we have a spiritual blindness, that we can't see the glory of God. And how is that taken away? Well, that's taken away by the power of of Jesus so that we can see the glory of God in his face. So he takes away our spiritual deadness. He takes away our spiritual blindness and he transforms our very lives. He transforms us from being selfish to unselfish, proud to being humble, fearful to being peaceful, sour to being sweet, judgmental to being merciful, angry to being patient, Bitter to being forgiven, easily irritated to being calm, from being cruel to kind, dishonest to truthful, immoral to self-controlled. Not perfectly, but we see this. And why do we see it? Because he's alive. Because his power is towards us, you see, to transform us. The reason we need to believe that he's resurrected is, is because we now know who he is as the very son of God, the one who's the Lord. And because of the Lord, he's powerful and his power is towards us and thus he can change us. And if you're a believer in Jesus, has changed you, given your sight that you can see him and is at work in you as well. And finally, because he's alive, we have great hope. The very point of this, too, is that is that he's been raised and we shall be too. He's the firstborn among many brothers. He's the first fruit of what is to come. And what is to come is the very consummation of everything. And so we can rest assured that for us and for every believer who's died before us and all that will die in the future, that a day will come when we will be resurrected. And oh yeah, our bodies will resemble, we suspect, the bodies that we have now, they'll They'll, I suppose, be recognizable. But they'll be really cool. They'll be imperishable, right? They'll be incorruptible. 
They will not be susceptible to disease or to weakness or to want, but they will be as the body of Jesus, if you will, in that sense. And so we have great hope, you see, that because he lives, we shall live. And we shall live with him in glory. But here's it. He says we must believe in our hearts. It's our minds we understand all the things that are true about Jesus and we can assent to all of that. We must rest in that. We must say, if this isn't true, I have no hope. But because it is true, then I do have hope. And and we, we rest in it. The danger, I think, for the church is that we're not wholehearted, but part hearted. Don't say that 10 times fast. That we're part hearted. I mean, we've heard it. We've actually acquiesced to it. We're willing to live in it because that's our family or that's our spouse or that's our kids or that's our parents. But the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I would suggest to you the evidence is there. I would suggest to you it's reasonable to believe it. But to believe it means you also believe yourself to be a sinner with no hope except in God's merciful grace. And that merciful grace is through this very one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead so that we would know that he's the son of God, that he's the Lord, that he has the power over sin and death so that his power would be towards us that we might believe. And so that's, that's where we leave it today. Do you believe this? Well, I mean, not quite. If you don't, call upon him. You may say that it doesn't make any sense if I don't believe it. Why would I call upon the Lord? Just allow a few non sequiturs in your life. There's plenty of them already. Let this be just another one. There's something about the fact that you're here. There's something about the fact that people are talking to you about Jesus. There's something about the fact that that you know about the resurrection of Jesus. So, So just take that as a cue that perhaps God is at work somehow towards you. And, 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 and say, all right, I have this information. God, forgive me and enable me to believe it. And if you do believe it, Enjoy it. Enjoy.